Coming up today, we delve into Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse dream and look at an AI tool that's verifying the age of children online. You're listening to the YGK Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Facebook attempted to rebrand itself as Meta. In an inadvertently comedic video presentation, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg imagined a near future in which Facebook, or Meta, is so powerful that it's able to build and sustain an entire alternate universe, where our every thought is tracked and monetized in a gauche and outlandish spin on Habbo Hotel. This was also the week when it was revealed that chip shortages cost Apple $6 billion in the last quarter of its financial year, according to CEO Tim Cook. But it still took in more than $83.4 billion. And finally, it was the week when Iran was hit by a cyber attack that paralysed its petrol distribution network. The ransomware hit a system that lets motorists buy subsidised fuel with a government-issued smart card. Iran claimed the attack was carried out by a foreign country, but didn't give any more details. It, it's kind of wild, right? We just come to expect that there should be cyber attacks against major pieces of public infrastructure. It's just the world that we live in now. But a a few years ago, something like this would have made really, really big global headlines. And now it's just sort of, oh, Iran's oil distribution network um, was was hacked. It has been a really sort of 2020 and 2021 thing that like the rise in ransomware over the last couple of years and sort of it's the way that it's been targeted to um, uh, actually go after sort of infrastructure and systems that um, will have a real world impact. So there was like earlier this year, there was the Colonial Pipeline that was attacked and that was uh, saw dis- uh, disruption across like the US oil supplies. There was the meat supplier, JBS, uh, which sort of had to close down some of its meat processing factories. And yeah, it does feel like alarmingly normal and sort of common how how much these big attacks can really sort of impact like stuff in the real world. Well, we'll be speaking about the fake world in a minute. But first, I'd like to know what you learnt this week, Matt Burgess. So this week, I learned that the British icon Henry the Hoover, or vacuum cleaner, uh, has just 75 parts. And the uh, founder of the company behind it says that these parts can still be used to repair the original model that was created in 1981. So a good sort of like circular economy sustainability sort of loop. Yes, Amit. What if you if you replaced all the parts of an original 1981 Henry, would it still be the same vacuum cleaner or not? I think you, you could still call it Henry, but it probably wouldn't be. Um, I think it was more just the point around nobody's actually going to do this. Nobody has a 40-year-old vacuum cleaner, I assume. Um, so um, it's just more the design hasn't changed and the system is the same is the point, I think. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you've got a 40-year-old version of Henry the Vacuum Cleaner. And we, we probably need to provide a little bit of context as to why you're bringing on quite a boring fact about a British Hoover to, <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, so we, we, had a, we had a meeting uh, a couple of days ago um, that one person was late to. And so bored are we by one another's company that we started talking about our favourite vacuum cleaners, which led us to Henry the Vacuum Cleaner. So thank you very much, Matt Burgess, for bringing a Henry-related fact onto the podcast. I learned this week what meta means. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the best of all the dictionaries, meta, when referring to creative work, means referring to the conventions of its genre, so something that is self-referential, essentially. To give an example, the enterprise is inherently meta since it doesn't review movies, it reviews the reviewers who review movies. Now, I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg was going for self-referential when he decided to rebrand Facebook as Meta. He was going for Metaverse. And that is the subject of our first story this week. So Facebook is now called Meta. Mark Zuckerberg's new umbrella company does two things, for those of you that aren't paying attention to the various um, PR distractions that Facebook's trying to put out right now. So first up, it splits out all of Facebook's many products and services under one company that isn't called Facebook. So it's a bit like when Google tried and failed to persuade everyone to start calling it Alphabet. 
nobody calls Google Alphabet. Second, it makes clear an intention. And this, I think, is the more interesting part, which is very much driven by Zuckerberg himself, to make Facebook or Meta the dominant company in what Zuckerberg envisions as the next great era of technological progress. Namely, Zuckerberg wants Meta to run the Metaverse. Let's stop right there and get some snap analysis. Matt Burgess, what do you make of Facebook's bold rebrand? Well, I think that on the sort of like uh, just the naming front, like that doesn't particularly matter too much to me. I don't think like it obviously has tried to separate itself out as legal entities, which it's doing for the next sort of like step of Facebook and probably a way so that um, Zuckerberg isn't so directly involved with the Facebook brand as such. But also on the sort of like bigger picture, um, it's this idea of creating this next technological platform, you say, which will be some sort of mixture of VR and AR where everybody has avatars and uh, can live in a virtual world and i'm just a little bit sort of like uncertain around whether um facebook really wants to position itself as the company that is in this big uh, overarching position for building the infrastructure it obviously wants to sort of create all the technological like hardware and software and everything behind this but then when you're getting to that stage of actually here's this world that it's creating um is facebook going to have that much control over it does it want that much control over it will we end up in the same sort of situation to what we already have with facebook and social media Amit, what do you think i think it betrays something about facebook's view of the world right i think in science fiction metaverses are built for people to escape from the real world right they're often incredibly dystopian future world and people build metaverses as a kind of escape from them or the metaverse itself is a really dystopian over commercialized you know commodified place where people are essentially pumped full of advertising if you look at snow crash the book that coined the term metaverse or even later efforts like ready player one it's this kind of weird mix of commercialization and utopia but it's either one or the other and i guess my feeling is that Facebook is not in a position that it's going to build a utopia for us to live in, right? It's going to build something that... Facebook wants us to live in the metaverse rather than in the real world because it's much harder to monetize the real world. Uh, So I question his motivations and the company's motivations. Um, But to be honest, I think this has largely been cooked up. If not in the last week, it's something they've had in their big sort of press the panic button mode when something really, really bad comes out, we'll unleash this new plan and it will stop everyone talking about what we've done wrong and it will start everyone talking about meta. And maybe that's what he means by meta. Exactly. Yeah, we're we're referring to Facebook by not referring to Facebook. So we'll keep calling it Facebook, even though Facebook wants us to call it meta. The, The name and Facebook's ability to use it so widely, I think is related to the 2011 acquisition of a Canadian AI healthcare startup that was acquired by the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. So Facebook has meta.com and meta.org and a bunch of other related handles. So it sort of had those sitting in its back pocket for a little while. And according to various press reports, it's been over the last six months or so that Zuckerberg personally has really ramped up this effort to get a small group of people around him to build out what he sees as Facebook's ambitions for the metaverse. But it's impossible to get away from the fact that this is a very handy rebrand for a company that is really and rightly being hauled across the coals um, for how it's spreading hate speech and misinformation. I mean, you know, Facebook is a social network that's linked directly to acts of genocide and violent political unrest. But now it's meta, and that means something different. But it is purely cosmetic, at least for now. So parallels have been drawn with tobacco giant Philip Morris, which rebranded itself as Atria Group in 2001. Don't think that really stuck. Um, French multinational oil and gas giant Total rebranded itself as Total Energies in May of this year in an attempt to stop people from seeing it as an oil and gas giant, despite the fact that it's one of the seventh biggest in the world. So Facebook is meta and it wants people to stop calling it Facebook. So let's let's play its game for a little bit. Let's assume Zuckerberg was being serious and this isn't all some elaborate ruse to stop the world from talking about how messed up Facebook is. What expectations can we have for Zuckerberg's grand metaverse plan, right? So for Facebook's part, um, it seemingly sees this composite universe of online virtual and augmented worlds as the next big thing in technology 
And in that respect, Facebook is way ahead. Yeah, I think, this, I mean, this kind of thing has been tried before, right? We've seen things like Second Life and obviously technology has come a long way since then. And from some of the stuff that was shown at the demonstration, it all seems to be relatively basic stuff. It's not as if they've invented some, you know, Ready Player One Oasis type world that we're all going to plug into and it's going to be lifelike and vivid. It, it all seems a bit like, you know, Nintendo Wii mini games right now. Um, so the thing that made Facebook so popular was that it had a really compelling proposition, which was the ability to essentially spy on people that you had a crush on at university, right? That's what powered Facebook into the global behemoth that it is today. I'm not convinced that it has that, or it has a similarly compelling proposition to get people to join the metaverse. And then you bring in all the problems of hardware and all the other stuff. Are people going to want to live in this world? I'm not sure. And just to build on that so facebook was established as sort of a a tool for connecting people at universities and then more broadly connecting people across the world what it's become and this is facebook the social networks big problem or one of its many big problems is it's losing young people really really quickly facebook is where and i don't mean this in a derogatory way is where boomers hang out it's not where Millennials and Gen Zers hang out, well, increasingly millennials, I suppose. But Facebook has an old person problem, if you like. And if you look at the sort of stuff that really, really takes off on Facebook, it's not something that you can really see translating into what Zuckerberg envisions for the metaverse. And not to assume, but I can't imagine many people outside of maybe a, a particular bubble of real VR and gaming enthusiasts would look at what Zuckerberg unveiled last night and think, that's really, really cool. So you mentioned Second Life. I've mentioned Habbo Hotel. There's also PlayStation Home or Magic Leap, right? And perhaps it's closest to what Magic Leap has envisioned. And as we've seen over the last decade or so that Magic Leap has been around, none of that technology has come to fruition because essentially it's all vaporware at the highest end. And more boringly, it's just a crappy video game. I think the other the other issue that that raises is this sort of idea of barrier to entry, right? Facebook has very low barrier to entry in terms of creating content. That's why it's a social network and not a content company. But someone who's sharing, you know, Donald Trump memes on Facebook isn't suddenly going to start creating vivid 3D content for the metaverse. So who is going to be creating that content? Well, it's going to be organizations with the resources to do it, which means it's going to be brands. And if it's brands, that means the metaverse is going to be essentially a digital high street full of shops and adverts and things you can buy it's going to be an e-commerce platform which is great but i don't see a compelling reason to spend my time there yeah and i think that's from some of the interviews that uh, mark zuckerberg has been given around this aside from the sort of flashy uh, video that they produced around the event is a lot of what he's been saying is about this opportunity and why facebook wants to do this now is obviously to get ahead and be the company that's owning this platform if on this infrastructure if it does happen um but he's also said that a big opportunity here is that commerce side of things so people's if 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 in this reality uh, people's avatars do exist and the things that they buy and the possessions um whether they're things that exist digitally or in the real world as well um then they can actually sort of like be involved in that in that commerce area and that's where facebook wants to sort of see that purchasing and where it will make money in this space going forward And I think, again, from one of the interviews that Zuckerberg gave under embargo ahead of, as you said, his flashy presentation, he said that this is something that he's wanted to do since before he founded Facebook 17 or or so years ago. So think about who Zuckerberg was then. You know, he was a teenager, kind of a young adult at university. Um, and, And that dream of building this metaverse has lived with him ever since. And maybe there are lots of people in the world that, have a similar dream but they don't have the means or the money to do it mark zuckerberg does but my question to to both of you is would you want to live your lives in mark zuckerberg's metaverse i mean we've already seen that people who live their lives in mark zuckerberg's facebook can get really really messed up did we have the same expectations for the metaverse if that even becomes a thing I've spent the last 10 years trying to live less on Facebook, right? I I think when these platforms first came in, I think we all just rushed to them. We all spent so much time there without really considering the consequences of that, both in terms of 
our own mental health, but also in terms of the the world that we were creating as a result of that. And I spend as little time on Facebook as possible. I don't want. I want to live in the real world. You know, I don't want to live in a, in a metaverse because I'd like to save the real world. Yeah, I, I think I have to agree. I think that that space does um, the demonstrations, everything, just seem a little bit sort of at the moment. Um, if like for one of the examples, it's like talking to people, having some AR glasses on and talking to people or messaging people um, uh, who are you're messaging digitally while speaking to other people in the real world. And it's a little bit like, well, why would you want to do both of those things sort of simultaneously? Um, surely the, the interactions and conversations you're having with somebody in the real world is a lot more sort of meaningful and engaging uh, than something that is happening digitally, even though they can both be uh, have their own values. And I think that as we sort of like go forward in this space, there is sort of like one thing that uh, keeps coming back to me in terms of like, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if we were all saying that we would spend a lot of our time on uh, smartphones, big glass panels where we're just reading or communicating with people via social media, whether it is whatever platform that is, that would have felt very dystopian um, uh, 10 years or so ago. Um, So to that sort of idea of the world that we're living in now feels very dystopian to what it would have been in the past makes me a little bit sort of like, well, actually, is this as we sort of roll out more AR technology, VR technology, is this going to become more acceptable? in that way that we've already seen i think the the comeback to that and i appreciate you trying to sort of present zuckerberg's view of how this this could work out the comeback to that would be magic leap right and obviously facebook has deeper pockets and more expertise than a startup that's done basically nothing but magic leap couldn't make this work google couldn't make this work with with google glass something that announced with kind of an equal amount of hype. You know, we were going to be running around the world, living in this sort of augmented space that allowed us to seamlessly interact with people using Google's products and services. That's not really happened. And it's kind of been pushed way, way off to one side. And so have an awful lot of um, Google and Facebook um, experiments, be they public or private, to get people to kind of move beyond smartphones. Smartphones have proven to be a really, really good piece of technology for all of their flaws they are very very effective at doing what they want to do and i couldn't get away from the fact that there was something really hubristic about what mark zuckerberg presented on thursday night you know it was mark zuckerberg for all that he's mocked this man is unimaginably powerful and he's parading around in this strange fantasy world where you can't quite tell what's real and what's fake and like what's a tech demo and what's just facebook spending a load of cash on fancy graphics and it's all entirely of his own imagination, right? So why why would Facebook decide very, very quickly, seemingly, to pivot to being a metaverse company? And you can't get away from the fact that Mark Zuckerberg within Facebook and across the wider world has a huge amount of power. And that power is kind of unaccountable. For a company of its size, Mark Zuckerberg has a a ludicrous amount of power and influence. And this feels like something that has been very much conceived of by Mark Zuckerberg. And he's unilaterally decided that one of the world's richest companies should suddenly start to build an alternate reality. And I think what, what we're getting at is that Okay, there might be, and and I think this is treating the idea too seriously because it is just a bit of a distracting rebrand. It it might be something that is interesting when the technology is there to realise it. But right now, even in the flashy tech demo, Mark Zuckerberg's vision for the metaverse looks really lame and pointless, right? So he showed us Horizon Workrooms, which is a virtual conference room product where people can work together on projects just like they used to do in the office. So He's created the office in VR. Why? He also showed off Horizon Worlds, which is a virtual reality-based social network. I mean, it's it's Second Life. It's PlayStation Home. It's have a hotel, you name it. You know, friends and family can get together and interact. I mean, it didn't it didn't help that Mark Zuckerberg has, has all the charisma of a plank of wood and he can't act. And Nick Clegg was also in there doing a very good job of not being able to act. You know, like, leave all of that to one side. The whole thing was very weird. But even with people who have personalities and can act i can't get away from the fact that mark zuckerberg's metaverse is kind of boring and the the sci-fi version that we're presented with is the stuff of fantasy right it's full of drama and excitement 
Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse is just a way of layering Facebook on top of the mundaneness of the real world in a way that no one other than Facebook is really asking for. Isn't that that if we're treating the idea seriously, isn't that the problem? It's just reality with a Facebook skin. Yeah, I think that fundamentally that when you look at some of the like the technical problems that need to be solved to get to a stage of creating that uh, more sci-fi, all-encompassing sort of immersive experiences that they want to talk about, then we're a huge, and Facebook would obviously admit this, we're a huge way off any of them really becoming a reality. I think there was at some point in that breakthrough of Mark, uh, Mark sorry, his presentation saying that Facebook had to make about 12 technological breakthroughs to get to the point where it wants to. And there's no guarantee that those breakthroughs will happen. There's no sort of guarantee that the tech will get to a stage where it can even do the types of things that they want to do in this larger vision. So at the moment, we're then stuck with, uh, yeah, sort of like very basic forms of VR and AR. Um, And I think one of the things from the presentation in particular that um, struck me that you just don't quite get across that user experience. Like at the moment, if you want to be doing something in AR, you have to, you're viewing the whole of the world in front of you through a tiny lens on your phone or on a tablet or in Facebook's world, um, some AR glasses. And you don't get that, like wearing those or looking through those sorts of devices isn't isn't really comparable to sort of like Facebook showing sort of like a digitally layered um, uh, avatar or or hologram or something on a video. Um, And like that sort of user experience thing is going to be key to if any of this works as well. I think that's one of the sort of big challenges we have seen with AR and VR stuff already that it is still a bit clunky to use, a bit sweaty if you're wearing a headset or um, yeah, you're looking through a small screen on your phone. And throughout Facebook's meteoric rise, Mark Zuckerberg has always said, you know, the company is on a mission to connect more people. The The subtext to that is to connect more people in a way that Facebook can see them, track them and monetize them. And, and, and that's really what we're getting at here. So Zuckerberg says that the success that the metaverse is the successor to the mobile Internet, you know, a connected world where mobile devices are no longer the focal point and the the problem for facebook facebook has lots of problems but if we imagine facebook's problem is it wants to connect everyone all the time and there are things in the way of that like antitrust law and people's sanity well if, if you're able to get rid of the physical device that creates a barrier between the real world and facebook's ability to collect data about it then the metaverse is perfect right it gives facebook infinite data points But, you know, we can't sit here and and treat this idea of any seriousness without grounding it in reality. You know, Facebook has had a ruinous impact on the mobile internet and the internet as a whole. It's done a lot of good, but fundamentally, this is a very flawed company. So for Zuckerberg to sort of boldly look at this gleaming metaverse future, it's kind of wild that there's this mad dumpster fire behind him that he should really be turning around and focusing his time his money and his energy on solving facebook has broken an awful lot of things in the world and now it's just trying to create another one and we should not take it at its word that the world that zuckerberg envisions will be better than the one that he's already ruined stunned into silence podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that i think it's it's a weird one isn't it we all agree with each other, um, but there must be an awful lot of people that think this is exciting, right? Or an interesting show of intent and ambition from one of the world's richest and most powerful companies. Is it or is it just a load of PR fluff? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on anything that we've talked about there. Bit of a segue here. Our second story this week is about hydrogen, Amit. It's been touted as a greener way to fuel everything from planes to trains and it's now being touted as a replacement for natural gas and this week we've been looking at a uk project that's been doing just that yeah that's right we've got a story on the site this week about a hydrogen project called high deploy in the north of england where the odorless flammable gas is being used to heat people's homes and provide energy for cooking instead of natural gas since august the small village of winlayton in the northeast has had its gas supply switched partially over to hydrogen in its 668 homes and small businesses and it's a bit of a timely story, this. We're recording this podcast on the eve of COP26, which is taking place in Glasgow, Scotland. This is, you know, the world's last chance. I don't think that's over-egging it to, to save itself from, 
from climate destruction. You know, there are countries that are going to disappear under rising sea levels. Um, the world that we're leaving for our children is not going to be a good place unless we get on top of this. So that's why we're doing this, right? There's a need for urgent action and good solutions. Yeah, and one of the most polluting parts of the economy of, is heating our homes. So about 85% of homes in the UK burn natural gas with boilers to, to heat. Um, that gives off methane, which gives off carbon dioxide when it burns. Um, the average home's daily gas use is the equivalent of driving 19 miles in a petrol fueled car. So this is a big, big problem. And solving it's a major headache. So almost half of the energy that we consume in the UK is used for heat. And, and 57% of that is used for heating our homes and for hot water. It generates more than 10 times the amount of carbon dioxide created by the aviation industry. So if the government wants to hit those net zero carbon emission targets by 2050, we really need to find an alternative way of keeping our homes warm. And there are a bunch of alternatives and measures that, that could be in place. I mean, fundamentally, this is a problem of money, right? If the government, not just the UK government, but any government were to invest properly in subsidies for insulation, um, and alternative heating systems and ripping out everybody's gas hobs, for example. You know, the, the idea that everybody thinks that cooking with gas is better is a marketing ploy dreamt up by the gas industry in the US decades and decades ago. It's why the phrase, you know, cooking with gas means that you're cooking better, whereas in reality, you know, conduction heating is, is pretty good. Um, so how disruptive... As this project, because th- this is one of the arguments, right? We've we've got this established gas network. We've got all all of these homes, millions of homes all around the country, all around the world that are built to run on gas. Surely, ripping all of that out is going to be unimaginably disruptive and expensive. Yeah, I, I think on your point about cooking with gas, I think some people would dispute that <laughs> induction hobs are quite as good, but uh, that's not really the main point here. But I think one of the main benefits of hydrogen, and one of the reasons that they're trying this project, is that it's it's it, it can be used with the existing network right so in the 1960s we used to use town gas which was a composite that contained up to 60 percent hydrogen that switched over to more pure forms of natural gas since then but importantly this project in the northeast has required no changes to the existing pipes and burners and there's growing evidence that you can blend up to 20 percent hydrogen with natural gas and it still be compatible with existing infrastructure the only difference that one local resident we spoke to noticed was that her gas oven cooked the food more quickly and that the flame was bright orange rather than the usual blue. Um, so the attraction of hydrogen is that it could be transported into our homes by repurposing that same underground network. So you wouldn't have to dig up all the roads and, you know, resupply everyone's homes. We could continue to use a type of boiler or we might need to get a new one to heat our homes in a similar way and we wouldn't really notice much difference. The problem is that once you get over to about 20%, of hydrogen to natural gas, that ratio, you do start to need significant network updates as well as hydrogen-specific appliances. And there's a, there's a, there's another flaw with hydrogen, right? It's a, it's it, it's only a temporary fix, and hydrogen compared to natural gas just isn't able to deliver in the same way if you're using the same infrastructure. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because in its down to physics, basically, or chemistry, hydrogen has a lower energy density per meter cubed of gas than methane. So the maximum it can reduce by using it is 7%, essentially. So it, what we're looking at is this this project, although it's you know laudable and it seems to be working well, it's only really an interim measure and we need to find a more effective solution. And the question people are asking about hydrogen is, well, what's going to take us the rest of the way to fully switch over to hydrogen-based rather than this mixture of hydrogen and natural gas. And there's, there's another problem here, and we're seeing this with an awful lot of proposed climate solutions, you know, carbon offsetting and um, burying carbon waste in, in the earth. There's, there's a lot of problems with any solution that isn't renewables, potentially, right? You know, there, there are people who very strongly oppose the UK's position on building new nuclear power plants, or certainly building new nuclear power plants in the way that we used to build them, rather than coming up with new ways of, of building them that, um, that are less problematic. And hydrogen is similar. It isn't necessarily always good for the environment. It really depends on how it's made, doesn't it? Yeah, and this is an accusation that gets thrown at electric cars a lot as well, like you know, if, if the fuel, if the power you're using to charge them comes from non-renewable energy, then you're, are you actually making a benefit? With hydrogen, there's two types. So there's blue hydrogen, which is made from blasting fossil fuels with high temperature steam. 
it's been estimated that this might actually be worse for the climate than natural gas because of the waste streams of methane that it generates. And you need around 30% more natural gas to make blue hydrogen than if it was used directly for heat. So that's one problem, and that's how a lot of our hydrogen is currently generated. You can make truly green hydrogen with electrolysis, which splits water into hydrogen and oxygen using an electric charge, but that's only green if the electricity that's used to split the split the water into hydrogen is from a renewable source, as you said, James. And because electrolyzers are only between 60 and 80% efficient, this needs a huge amount of energy. And you end up with a unit price that's double or triple the current price of gas. So the economics don't really work. Presumably something that can and will happen is the cost of renewable energy will, will go down and will create an awful lot more of it, which could potentially bring down the cost enough and give us enough power in the system to create this stuff at scale. Yes, but then the question you have to ask is whether green hydrogen is the best place to put that energy. Um, so heat pumps, which the British government recently announced very big subsidies for and targets to build tens of thousands of them over the next few decades, they also run on electricity, but they're much, much more efficient than this process of electrolyzing hydrogen. Uh, green hydrogen has an energy efficiency of 46% for heating. Heat pumps produce an energy efficiency of 270% because they extract heat from the environment rather than making it themselves. But again, that's a huge infrastructure challenge and we'll need to improve the energy efficiency of the UK's housing stock to insulate homes better as well. And as as I mentioned at the top, we're at this moment of great urgency. COP26 in Glasgow happening over the coming days and weeks. We need to make long-term solutions rather than put in place short-term fixes. And any of those fixes can't be based on whoever's best at lobbying or, you know, government signing contracts with with companies that they're friendly with. This needs to be looked at in sort of a, a scientifically neutral way, even if the better solution costs X times more. Now is the time to spend the money and make the right play rather than do something that's ultimately just going to fiddle around the edges. So the, there are other potential issues with this this focus on hydrogen blue hydrogen green hydrogen right yeah so in terms of technical challenges there's something called embrittlement where hydrogen atoms diffuse into the pipes and cause them to crack which means that we might require significant upgrades around the country it's thought that hydrogen is more likely to leak and finally um, and not insignificantly it's thought that hydrogen boilers might be slightly more at risk of exploding than gas boilers but you, you talked about the need to find you know the right solution i think the truth of the matter is that hydrogen isn't going to be a suitable solution for every home. I think it's human nature to think of a single solution to a, a, a complex problem like, you know, a vaccine. But this isn't the kind of problem that's going to be solved with one, you know, silver bullet. This is something that's going to need a complex network of different solutions because it's got a complex network of different causes, right? So there's no single solution that's going to decarbonize everything. And hydrogen is just one piece of the puzzle. And it's beholden on, on governments, and this is something that's very much going to be, hopefully, the focus of COP26. You know, it's, it's all very well telling people to recycle more at home or put in place insulation. But this is a problem that is so huge, it requires huge action on a huge scale. So it is beholden on governments to say to homeowners and landlords and, and business owners, and commercial property owners, these are the steps you need to take. And here is the financial support we're going to give you to help you get there. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting at home right now looking out of my window, row upon row of 1930s houses that have been, you know, updated a little bit, but, you know, they've still got chimneys on top of them. They're still drafty. They're still heated by gas boilers. And if I get out and walk, I can walk for getting on an hour and all I walk past is 1930s houses. And, you know, I'm not describing something exceptional and unusual. This is the case across the UK and across the world. We live in old, energy inefficient houses. And until proper systems are put in place to make those buildings more energy efficient, all of this is just fiddling around the edges. But it's promising to hear that there are these small scale experiments that are helping us to understand what might be the best solutions to put in at a large scale, right? Yeah, I think we've shown over the last 18 months that, or the government has shown over the last 18 months that it is willing to spend a lot of money at solutions in an emergency situation. And we have a lot of the solutions, right? We know that better home insulation is going to save a lot of energy. We know that, you know, financial 
disincentives to flying will cut down aviation emissions. We know that incentives and subsidies for electric cars will encourage people to make the switch. We know that we need a better infrastructure for charging stations if people are going to switch to non-polluting vehicles. So <laughs> I guess the, and maybe this is what will come out of COP26, you know, we kn- we're willing to spend money in an emergency. Well, this is an emergency. <laughs> so we need to start spending the money to fix it, it across all these different areas. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, as we said a couple of times, you know, COP26 is, is upon us. Now is the moment for decisive action. What are your hopes for that conference? And I suppose more, more prosaically, but more tangibly, how have you adjusted your own home, adapted your own home to make it more energy efficient? Have government subsidies helped you to improve insulation or install solar panels on your roof? Let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that one or anything else that we talk about on the show this week. Or if you're trawling back through the archives, you can get in touch with us about an old episode as well. Our third and final story this week is about age verification. So this week has seen the publication of the Facebook papers. We're not going to be talking directly about that. When Francis Hogan first leaked to the US press, the stories were about Instagram's impact on teenagers. And it's easy to forget because so much has happened in between them. But that's where this story started. And that initial leak tapped into the bigger ideas of social media and technology's wider impact on children. So there's been a swell of lawmakers looking into this issue of protecting children online. This week, TikTok, YouTube and Snapchat were grilled by lawmakers in the US. And it's easy to to get a little bit, um, you know, technology causes this problem, technology can solve it, Matt. But this week, you've been looking at one way a UK company has developed that it thinks could help protect kids online. Yeah, so British startup uh, and company Yoti, which deals in sort of like digital identity, has basically expanded its age estimating technology. It now says that it can accurately estimate whether someone is over or under 13 just by looking at their face, either a picture or via a camera on a laptop, phone, tablet or something more live and real time. Um, And before this, it's AI, AI power technology, it says, could determine how old somebody was from 13 to 60. Now it says it's expanded it to be able to do this from six years old to 60. And across this sort of uh, 45 year age range, it says it has a margin of error of 2.79 years. Um, and it, for different age groups within that, it says it's tech can estimate 13 to 25 year olds age within 1.5 years. Um, and the margin of error comes down to 1.3 years for children aged between six and 12. Yeah, so the, the reason that we're talking about this is that most of the major technology platforms, TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, etc., in theory, you need to be over the age of 13 to set up an account. And there have been all sorts of reports of these platforms being used for, for grooming, um, sexual predators. So, you know, this is a, a really, really important issue and one that's been you know put to these tech platforms. You've got this problem kind of how are you going to solve it well if we believe that technology is a solution then maybe this is one way of solving it so this challenge of aging or using an ai to determine the age of people who are this young is quite complicated so how does it work yeah, so in some ways, it's like a fairly standard application of machine learning. So one of Yoti's other services that it does is sort of ID and verification checking. So it will look at people's ID documents um, and then say, yes, this is an official document approved that it is somebody that is who they say they are. And it's done deals with sort of the NHS and various governments to do this. And it's taken the photos that it gets from those ID documents. And it says uh, with people's consent uh, and people can opt out and trained and AI uh, algorithm against them. So the AI is given photos labeled with people's gender and year and month of their birth. And once it is trained, it can then take a new image that it's not seen before and say how old it thinks somebody is. Um, for children under 13, because its app doesn't allow uh, young people to use or to use it, um, it basically says that it had to pay for this data, which some people uh, will question and maybe find uncomfortable, how to pay parents uh, to get consent uh, of their children uh, to use their photos and their data. Um, 
and that's how they trained it for under 13s previously they didn't have this type of data um so essentially you you walk up in front of a camera and show your face and it makes a prediction of how or an estimation of how old you are um yoti says that no data is stored and it doesn't remember you or allow you to be identified um and it does believe that its system is pretty accurate and has published a bunch of data um which it says and shows that backs this up when i tried it a couple of times it put me in different age brackets between 27 and 31 and 28 and 32 and both of those are correct um and to sort of preempt a question on sort of like how it works out how old you are um the uh, yoti ceo uh, robin tombs told me that the company doesn't know if it's wrinkles or the shape of your eyes or what it is that essentially um makes you look a certain age uh, it, he says that there isn't the explainability within the system uh, to be able to work this out and the system has essentially just done so many faces that it's able to identify age or estimate age accurately it's the algorithmic black box right that we talk about an awful lot when we're looking at even even quite basic applications of machine learning we know how we recognize if somebody is older or younger or you know if i were to look at somebody walking down the street and make a guess at their age maybe i'd be kind of right but you know my partner's in her mid to late 30s and still gets id'd for for buying alcohol so you know humans are flawed and in some way this ai is better than humans purely because it has access to these these much larger data sets so that's what yoti's claiming anyway we've sort of hinted at this already but what's all this got to do with kids online and keeping them safe yeah so as you say james uh, sort of touched on this already but the reason it's developed this for under 13s is that is the age that most social social media platforms uh, allow people to start using them um, and at the moment this very much gets abu- abused it's a pretty big problem um so there are um, all of the big social media platforms have had problems with uh, underage people using their using their services. Um, and uh, at the moment, a lot of online age checking for signing up for a social media platform involves little more than uh, people entering the date of birth, which can obviously be easily faked or made up. Um, and equally, websites tend to avoid asking people to upload identity documents due to fears of data breaches. Um, but around the world, sort of lawmakers are looking at implementing new uh, regulations that mean that uh, tech companies and not just social media but wider technology companies and websites that uh, handle sort of sensitive uh, content such as pornography or gambling or uh, allow people to buy knives and things like that uh, are looking at introducing sort of age verification and checks for uh, making sure that people are or younger people are not given the same sort of full range of features or can't access things that um, that they shouldn't be looking at um, so essentially that this type this is one way that's being developed around this there's other ways of age verification that are sort of being developed so like facebook says that uh, it's the ai that it's using to work out how old people are it will also use sort of like various social cues and messages that are sent to people so if it's your birthday and somebody is saying that uh, happy i don't know sweet 16th or happy 13th birthday or something like that and you've said you're a different age then it will sort of like try to work out that you might not be uh, the age that you said you were originally um so there's that sort of thing there's also a lot of work going around sort of like biometrics for other sort of like facial recognition applications and there's also things around sort of like um uh, vein and uh, vein verification and sort of uh, using the other biometric fields to sort of work out how old you are alongside uh, also other systems and platforms that are trying to check um different types of digital identity or use traditional id documents so there are sort of various approaches in this i uh idea of age verification and estimation is one of them um and basically it's something that's been looked at by a lot of tech platforms as a problem that they need to try and get around to get uh, on top of various laws in this space and depending on how the regulation ends up shaking out you know at the moment this is broadly quite an ungoverned space one of the things that technology companies might say is aha we've got a technical solution to it and it's developed by well, I'm sure Yoti would hope that, you know, that they say it's developed by Yoti and they, they sign loads of really, really big contracts. Question is, is, is anyone using it right now and does it seem to be working? So in terms of Yoti's uh, specific uh 
uh, technology. There are some companies already using this, but as you say, there are other companies doing this in this space. Um, the reason why we're talking about Yoti is because they say they're the first to be able to do it for under 13s. Um, but it is also launching five trials in supermarkets in the UK at self-checkouts uh, for sort of purchases of alcohol and things like that, where a camera will estimate how old you are. If you choose to, you can also choose to just use a traditional ID document or be sort of approved by somebody who uh, is working in the shop. Uh, but there's also other sort of some social media companies and websites that are smaller um, that are using it. So Yubo, uh, which is a sort of social media platform and Smash, which is sort of like a healthy eating app. Uh, both are using this type of technology to check how old people are when they're using it. And Yoti also says that some uh, pornography web websites, gambling websites and gaming platforms are planning on trialing this in the next few weeks. It hasn't named those companies because the trials aren't live yet, um, but says that there are some big companies involved in this. And we've talked on the podcast for many years about sort of like age checks on pornographic websites and the UK's previously planned porn box. So this is still very much building into some of that technology. And uh, just in the last few days as well, we've also seen sort of like Google uh, in some of its sort of protections that it's got for under 18s uh, saying that if you are, if you haven't verified your age, you might have to send it uh, uh, copies of your ID documents and things like that to be able to use various uh, forms of search or view certain videos on YouTube. So it is something that is expanding out there, this idea of age verification. It's a tricky path to tread. We touched on a number of dystopian themes when talking about Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. And let's, to make another point, which we, we both touched upon, talking about this age verification story, this is seeking to solve the problem of very young children being on platforms that aren't designed to them, that may expose them to sexual abuse at worst and, you know, may just put them in an environment where, you know, per Francis Huygens um, whistleblowing around Instagram, the apparently ruinous impact that Instagram has had on teenage girls and Facebook's knowledge of that impact, you know, if, if they weren't on there in the first place, or if they're on an altered version of Instagram that wasn't designed in the same way as full fat Instagram, it might be better for them. And we've seen these age verification systems being used in China, right? Recently, the Chinese Communist Party has announced that there are going to be restrictions placed on the ability of minors to play games outside of certain hours, and it's using facial recognition and identity document systems to verify the ages of people um, and make sure that they're not playing when they shouldn't be. So there's an awful lot going on here. And we're at this moment where we all realise there's there are problems with these big platforms and we agree that perhaps we need to start thinking about solving them. But is this AI approach a good idea or are we just creating more problems? It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's one of these things that's in a space where there is a lot of issues around this. And at the stage uh, where at the moment, a lot of the technology with AI related products and particularly also estimation is very much ahead of uh, where any type of regulations or controls around its use are, are in terms of like their development. So yes, as you say, like this type of technology could protect kids if it works. Um, but when you speak to sort of privacy experts and people that are uh, advocating for uh, an, an open and sort of free internet, um, they say that there are a lot of problems that are sort of unaddressed at the moment. So the UK's data protection regulator rather broadly says that AI for uh, age estimation, there isn't a lot of evidence out there. There's not a huge amount of, because it's a relatively new area, there's not a huge amount of independent scientific work that has uh, been done to sort of verify these types of systems. And there's no standards or uh, broad checks against types of algorithms that how accurate they are other than by companies that are doing that themselves and to be fair to Yoti on, on one sense it has published a lot of data about uh, how it sees the accuracy of its tests um, it has uh, is published data broken down by year for uh, a year of age for how accurate these systems are for all the way up from 6 to 60 uh, but also for gender and different uh, different types of skin tones as well and it does show its own data shows there, there are some discrepancies and some uh, bias with in these types of systems in terms of uh, how they can um, how they work against different demographics um, so it's said that this it's, it's put this out there and said that it's a problem to some extent 
content, although it says that its systems are more accurate for younger people because that's where it's got more training data and that's where these ideas of sort of like age verifi- verification and gating uh, come into come into play and most use it says it's not creating products for people who are sort of 50 or 60 because they don't get their ages checked um, very often. Um, so um, it's been a little bit more proactive in this space, but there is definitely sort of like a lack of regulation and control and sort of understanding about how these these systems work and there's always the uh, sort of slippery slope argument that comes into play like once you've rolled out these systems how are they then going to be used uh, by other actors going forward so i think in brazil in the past we've seen sort of age and gender estimation uh, technologies being used uh, to then ultimately target advertising on billboards and things like that so there have been cases where this type of technology not from yoti but from others has been sort of used in ways that could infringe upon people's uh rights or civil liberties and uh, essentially once you've got that technology unless it's controlled there will be ways that it's developed and other people want to use it so there there is that sort of like wider societal concern around these types of technologies that at the moment we just don't know how they're going to sort of like change people's behaviors and will you uh, get used to going on a website all the time and having your age checked by looking at a camera and if it's wrong how do you sort of like complain about that how do you get it redressed um, and there's all these types of issues that at the moment while these uh, these things look like good technical solutions there's also the wider societal concerns around them I'd say that need to be addressed too. Yeah f- effectively you risk normalizing surveillance and the type of surveillance that you normalize might be face scanning, AI-based face scanning to determine people's age and lots of other things about them, which, I mean, it isn't just a a slippery slope. That is a a fully greased, very steep slope uh, that we might not like to head down. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talked about on the show. Time for a couple of your emails before we wrap up this week. Adrian emails in about the great resignation, and no, not just at Wired. I am one of your many pandemic-era listeners, he writes, and he started listening to the podcast from his home in Dallas in the US as part of his lockdown entertainment and education, and he's stuck with us ever since. And Adrian wonders if, given Wired's recent coverage of the Great Resignation and what we referred to as boomerang employees, these are people who leave a job and then come back, and with Vicky and Natasha leaving Wired for Pastures New, if we should dedicate a whole episode of the podcast to this topic as, and I quote, well, I quote from Adrian, Wired is living this. Yes, potentially, but that would probably require Vicky or Natasha to come back to Wired. Um, I would say watch this space. Uh, but I also wouldn't. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yes, we'll leave it there. Uh, Matt Burgess, you've got another email. Uh, Yeah, and this is on a similar theme. Uh, Rich from New Jersey writes in to say, "Okay, guys, that's enough. No one is allowed to leave this week. Also, please never change the opening closing music. Uh, My wife, Diane, and and I enjoy it very much. Thank you for the podcast. Well, that's very kind of you. And No one else is is leaving unless one of you is about to spring a surprise on me, right? We're... We're all. I do have an an announcement to make. (laughs) Don't, Matt Burgess, please. Um, And I I should just add, my tone was a little bit weird there. Um, Vicky and Natasha have gone on to brilliant, really exciting new jobs. Um, We didn't mention them on the podcast, uh, on their their two final podcasts, but if you want to look up where they've gone on to, um, head to Twitter and and look them up. Um, We're both very, very excited. We're all very, very excited for what they've gone on to do um and we'll all be staying in touch podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show hopefully no more resignations over the next couple of weeks thanks so much for listening always a pleasure see you next time bye-bye goodbye Bye.